If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 13 and hold on to your seats. Is he going to fly away? I don't know. We'll see. As you all know, I'm telling you nothing you don't know, chapter 13 follows chapter 12. And chapter 12 ended with verse 32 that says, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. That's not the first time God said that in Deuteronomy. Why does he keep pounding on the tables as if there are going to come false teachers one day who will try and tell us that God's commandments no longer apply, that they've been done away with, that he changed his mind, that he no longer wants what he wanted before? You say incorrect, but let's prove it from the scriptures. You say it's incorrect, let's prove it from the scriptures. We already know several scriptures. Keep a finger here, go to Psalm 89, verse 34. This is one that's well known to us, Psalm 89, verse 34. Psalm 89, verse 34. Let me give you a chance to find it. I want you to see it with your own eyes. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. What does God mean when he says, I will not break my covenant, nor alter even a word that has gone forth from my lips? He's not going to change a single thing. Let's add to that Psalm 119. This is just background for Deuteronomy 13. Psalm 119. Because much of this relates back to Deuteronomy 13. Psalm 119, verse 89. And don't let me get ahead of you. If I get ahead of you, say, yo, slow down. There is no fire yet. Psalm 89, verse 34 said, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my mouth. Psalm 119, verse 89 adds to that. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Does this mean that the word of God is going to change repeatedly? Just hang on to your seat? No, it does not. The word of God has been settled in heaven since when? Since the beginning. Messiah is the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So what did Messiah say in his own words in Matthew 4.4? Quoting from Deuteronomy. But let's look at his words because they're in red and we know what that means. Matthew 4.4. 4. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So which words did God speak 
that are no longer relevant? None. Have any of them passed away? No. Have any of them changed? No. But Paul said, okay, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's see what Paul said. And again, this is all just background for Deuteronomy 13. First Timothy. Second Timothy. I got to find First Timothy first. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 17. Paul tells Timothy, who is a young pastor of a church, brought to the Lord by the Apostle Paul, discipled by the Apostle Paul. He says in 2 Timothy 3.14, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. With all due apologies to those who say that he had the 1611 King James Version of the Bible, he did not. All Timothy had as a child was what you and I might call the Tanakh or the Old Testament. Since which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Messiah Yeshua. And he says, all scripture, or better translated from the Greek, every scripture, is given by inspiration of God. But that doesn't carry the meaning. The words are... What? Theonuptos, God breathed, meaning every scripture is that which came out of the mouth of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So which words does Paul tell Timothy that God spoke that are no longer relevant, no longer important, should be set aside, done away with? None of them, right? So let's go back to chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. And chapter 13, you're going to find, contains three warnings against following the false teachers who would lead you into idolatry or following after someone or something other than the true and living God. So Deuteronomy 13, we're going to read verses 1 to 3, and then we're going to chase the ibex. Verse 1 says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, God bless you, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known. And let us serve them. That is, let us obey someone or something other than God. It says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So if a prophet comes upon Mount Washington, D.C. and calls down fire from heaven... And tells us to renounce God and to follow after the ways of the world. Should we listen to that prophet? No. Why would God let the fire come down from heaven? To separate the believers and the 
to separate the believers and the make-believers, to test us to see, will we be true to God or not? In 1 Kings chapter 13, we find an example, and it's one that I find very instructive. 1 Kings chapter 13. Which comes first in time, Deuteronomy 13 or 1 Kings 13? Deuteronomy 13, by how long? Yeah, four to five hundred years. Maybe even a little longer than five hundred years. So long enough that everybody alive in 1 Kings 13 ought to know what Deuteronomy 13 says, right? It's not like they haven't had a chance. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Everybody there, give me a thumbs up. Make sure it's a thumb because I can tell the difference. Okay. <laughs> verse 1. And behold, what does behold mean? This is really important. Don't miss this. A man of God, he's a prophet. He's a true prophet. Went from Judah, that's the southern kingdom of Israel, to Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. And that's in the northern kingdom of Israel after Israel split into two kingdoms. And this is the place where the northern kingdom built pagan idols to worship the golden calves, right? Golden calves. And Jeroboam, oh, he went by the word of the Lord that is God sent him. And Jeroboam, who's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, stood by the altar to burn incense. Is the altar of Bethel an altar to God? The answer is no, it is not. It's a pagan altar. So here is the king of the northern kingdom of Israel about to burn incense to a pagan god in front of his people. Do you think that would upset God? Indeed. Then he, that is the prophet, the man of God from Judah, cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord means God told him to do this. And said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. How long before Josiah is born is this prophecy given? Three to four hundred years. It's hundreds of years before Josiah will be born. How could God possibly know? Because he knows everything. Only he can tell us the end from the beginning shall be born to the house of David. So Josiah will be a descendant of David, which means he'll be king in the southern kingdom of Judah. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. In other words, Josiah is going to destroy the pagan idolatry from the land. And the high priests and other pagan priests that are leading people in worship against God He's going to put to death. Why? When we get on in Deuteronomy 13, we'll find out why. It says, And he gave a sign the same day. The fulfillment of the prophecy in verse 2, by the way, is in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 5. It takes place exactly as the prophet said it would. So verse 3, And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. In other words, if the prophet's going to give a prophecy that won't be fulfilled for 400 years, how can the people of the day he gives the prophecy 
believe it. They need to see a short-term fulfillment, a sign that says, when this comes to pass, you know that what I told you is true. Saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. This altar is an altar to the pagan gods. The ashes on it are from sacrifices to those golden calves. Verse 4, so it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, arrest him. Everybody do that. Stick your hand out. Say, arrest him. Oh, my. Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered, so that he could not pull it back to himself. This didn't happen a week later. It's as the fingers out saying, arrest him, that the entire arm withers and he can't pull it back to himself. Do you think this would affect the king? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Verse 5. The altar also was split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar. According to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Jeroboam didn't have to wait till tomorrow. It was fulfilled right then. Verse 6. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the favor of the Lord your God. Notice not the Lord my God but the Lord your God, and pray for me, so that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. Why would he reward this prophet? Who had the Lord restore his hand and arm, you betcha. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you. Nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. Is that the kind of thing you tell a king? Hey, ain't doing it. So why would he do that? Verse 9 tells us. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord saying. What's that word saying? It's a quote. These are the very words that came out of the mouth of God. You shall not eat bread nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So the prophet knows these words came out of the lips of God. What do we learn in Psalm 89, 34? What do we learn in Psalm 119, verse 89? What do we learn in Matthew 4, 4? When those words go out of God's mouth, what does he mean? They don't change. It means exactly what he said. So verse 10, so he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. So far he's doing great. Here's where he goes astray. Verse 11, now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel. Bethel, remember, is in the northern kingdom of Israel, which turned away to pagan idolatry as soon as they split from the southern kingdom of Judah. And his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. So those words included what? The Lord told me to go away. Lord told me to go home a different way. I can't stay here. I can't eat here. I can't drink here. And the father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God who went came who went who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. And went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak tree. 
Then he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. They said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. He said, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. Does the prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah realize God said this? Yes, he's repeated it over and over. Was it conditional by the Lord? It was not. Verse 18. He said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Open Perrin, he was lying to him. Close Perrin. So the prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah hears from this other guy, Hey, I'm a prophet too, and God told me, Ah, he changed his mind. Come home with me and eat. Question? Could that be in similar fashion as uh, Balaam and Balak trying to curse Israel and they came to a consensus that they'd entice them into sinning with the uh, idol worship and, yep. and prostitutes? To yep. So this guy who claims to be a prophet from the northern kingdom is trying to lead this prophet into sin, right? To get him to break the word of the Lord, to break his commandment. So let's see verse 19. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened as they sat at the table, the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back ate bread and drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Can you imagine the shock on the prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah's face as he says, but you told me. But you told me. I listened to you. What's it mean your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers? It means you're not going to make it home. You're going to die on the way. Verse 23, so it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. This is the prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah, killed by a lion on the road on the way home. And his corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. So the lion doesn't eat the corpse. It just stands there by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who is disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. The reason this section of scripture is so meaningful to me is the prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah believed the prophet from Israel, that God had really told him, I've changed my mind. I've broken my own commandment. 
I've told you to do something that I told you before not to do. And the man from Judah believed it. And what happened? It cost him his life. It cost him his life. You know what reminded me when you were talking about the prophet in Jerusalem that told a lie, how that people are going to be trying to stand on Judgment Day and tell teachers and preachers that I did it your way. Yeah, they're going to tell the Lord, but this is what my preacher told me to do. And it, it didn't help a bit, did it? It didn't help this old prophet, not a single bit. Does God give us a commandment and then say, oh, never mind, I is just kidding. Can't you take a joke? The answer is no. So in Deuteronomy 13, God said, even if a prophet tells you to disobey me, it's a test to see if you will be obedient to me or whether you will be quickly turned aside to sin, essentially. And in 1 Kings 13, should that prophet have known it? Yes. He should have known it. Should we today know that if somebody says, God changed his mind and his commandments don't stand anymore, should we believe it? An unconditional commandment. So when God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and in the 4th century, at the Council of Laodicea and in Canon 29, the Pope says, don't you dare keep Sabbath, do Sunday instead. Should we say, well, okay, then this must be from God. God changed his mind. He changed his commandment. Mm. Let's look at another example. In Acts chapter 10. I have a question. Ask your question. Go ahead. Um, It doesn't say. If I was that false prophet, I'd have changed my way. But it simply doesn't say. Well, I was thinking along the same lines that Karen was, was thinking. Mm -hmm. And I read, um, he requested that he be buried in the same place as the, the good prophet. Yeah. Was there a something to that or why he that? <clears throat> he was hoping that way his bones didn't get burned on the altar when Josiah came along. Okay. Alright. Acts chapter 10. I have read many a commentator that said Peter sinned. When Peter did not obey God, when God told him to rise, Peter kill and eat. Let's read that story and see what Peter knew that these theologians have overlooked, perhaps. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. Was he Jewish? Nope. No. <laughs> he was a Roman. He was not a Jewish. A centurion, though, is a man of quite high authority in the Roman army. But verse 2 says he's a devout man. Devout to whom? Devout to God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, that's not normal for Roman soldier. Was he perhaps a centurion that was at the crucifixion of Messiah? Doesn't say who that centurion was. But he's a devout man, one who feared God with all his household. One who feared God is a technical term. And it means 
that he keeps the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God, which again is not normal for a soldier in the Roman army. He gave alms generously to the people. The word used here for people refers to the Jewish people. So where the Romans despised the Jews by and large, he is giving alms or money to the poor amongst the Jewish people. And he prayed to God always. Could it be considered that, that you know, the, the term the people could be considered just everyday people, common people, the people that born and raised and live there? The word that is used is specifically Jewish people. Okay, because there wouldn't be just regular common people from other places, or especially Rome, living among them in a day-to-day -day life. Right. They're talking specifically about giving alms to the poor amongst the children of Israel because God takes notice. Does a normal Roman do this for Jewish people? No. So he's showing a love for God's people that is out of the ordinary. And notice it says he prays to God always. Is he ever praying to the pagan gods? No. That's why it says always. So his heart, for some reason, has turned to God and God alone. And he's following God's commandments. So does he serve pigs to his household? No, he does not. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and is saying to him, Cornelius. When he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Is this man saved? Yes. No, he's not. No, he's not. Okay. Because <clears throat> let's see what God tells him to do. Okay. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. So God tells him to go have Peter come up, and Peter's going to preach the gospel to him. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So how many people does Cornelius send? Three. Three Gentile soldiers who are devout as he is devout. They are believers. So when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Joppa is down by Tel Aviv. It's where Jonah decided to go fishing. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, so that's noon. Notice Cornelius is praying at nine, noon, and three, so is Peter. That was the standard traditional times for prayers amongst the Jewish people of the day, and for many still. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. What's it mean, fell into a trance? He sees a vision and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. Why does it say like a great sheet? Because it's not a great sheet, but it's something like it. It is a prayer shawl. And what's bound at the four corners? The seat that represent what? The commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. And what are they on our prayer garments for? To be a reminder of God's commandments. So verse 12, In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. 
So there are unclean things on this thing like a great sheet. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. This was done three times. How many men are coming? Three. Three times it was done. And the object was taken up into heaven again. And while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And they go through and tell the story. Peter saying, look, God told him to rise and eat these unclean things. Why didn't he do it? He'd read Deuteronomy 13 and 1 Kings chapter 13. Is God going to say, I know I forbid you to ever eat this, but now I'm telling you to eat it? Does that sound a lot like 1 Kings 13 and the prophet that came up from Judah? Peter says, I know this is a test, and I'm not going to fail it. Now when the three men knock at the door, can't you just see him in his mind going one, two, three? Hmm. The scripture didn't say, I cleanse the pigs. It says in verse, six, verse 15, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. So in verse 28, Peter says, now I know what's going on. They said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go with one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call what? Any man common or unclean. Whose law is it that says the Jewish man can't go to the home of a Gentile? It is not God's. It's not God's. That's man-made rules. That's rabbinic rules. Put out two hands. God said the pig is unclean. The rabbi said the Gentile is unclean. Who gets to decide what's clean or unclean? God does. So I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, verse 29, therefore, because of this, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Without this vision, what would happen when those three men knocked at the door? What would have Peter said? Get out of here. Go away. I can't go with you. Forget it. Now go down to verse 34 of Acts 10. Peter goes on to explain. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality that is between Jew and Gentile. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. And then he goes through and explains how Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected. So look at verse 42. And he, the Lord, commanded us to preach to the people. That is, in Matthew 28, who did he say to preach to? Everybody. And to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And then, of course, they went and they were baptized. 
Is this the last time we see an application of Deuteronomy chapter 13? You says if it is, that's a dumb question, Wayne. So turn to Revelation. <coughs> Revelation chapter 13. Another 13. Isn't that interesting? Deuteronomy 13, 1 Kings 13, Revelation 13. We should move the, the story of Peter to Acts chapter 13. Shouldn't No, we shouldn't either. We should leave the Bible as God wrote it. Revelation chapter 13. The first half of the chapter is about the false Messiah, Antichrist, or beast of Revelation 13. Call him whatever you want. But he's got a sidekick. The sidekick is called the false prophet. And he's the one we want to read about in Revelation 13. He is like that lying prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel who lied to the prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah. First King, Revelation 13, verses 11 to 17. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth that is arising out of the land of Israel somehow. And he had two, two horns like a lamb, that is, he appears to be a Christian, and spoke like a dragon. His real loyalty is to Satan, not to God. He's a false prophet. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it's the number of a man. His number is 666. Okay, so this false prophet is able to do such things as call down fire from heaven and make the image of the beast to speak. And for that reason, people are deceived and think this must be from God. Otherwise, how could this prophet do these miraculous wonders? If they had read Deuteronomy 13, what would they say? Oh, God's allowing these, this false prophet to do these miraculous things to see if we will follow God or whether we will be led astray, right? If they read Exodus. If they, they read... They mimicked Aaron. Yeah. I mean, right there it was. I mean, God let Aaron do it and here they, the witches and the warlocks and everything else did it too. Yeah. So people ask me a lot, why would God allow the false prophet to perform these miracles? The answer's right there in Deuteronomy 13. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 13. There's, a, there's spiritual power in, in, uh, in the world today. There is spiritual power in the world today, that's right. You've got plenty of those people that walk the coals, people that 
have the upside down crucifixions done. Yeah, all kinds of things. All kinds of things. So the, the fact that somebody does something that looks miraculous or is miraculous doesn't prove it's from God. Right. I told you before of a friend of mine in the JAG department who was a Roman Catholic. And he kept letting Mormons visit his home and tell him about the Book of Mormon and how, how good the Mormonism was and how that's the true religion. So he said one night he laid down in bed and prayed, Lord, if Mormonism is right and true, then send me a sign. And suddenly a beautiful, bright female angel appeared in the bedroom over his bed and told him, Thus saith the Lord, yes, this is the way to go. And he converted to Mormonism. First thing you should have thought of is, there's never a female angel in the Bible. But angels across the Catholic world are portrayed as female. And the fact that he gets a miraculous sign that says, go off and worship another way, did not mean it was from God. So, yes, sir? Um, where we just read um, Revelation 13, verse 17. We're Revelation 13, verse 17. No man may. Yep. Well, the way it's worded, I'm just wondering which way is it really supposed to be translated. I've never seen this before. That no man might buy. And I've got the open Bible. Go ahead. No man might. No man might buy or sell. Buy or sell. Except that he that has. He that had the mark. The mark or. or the name. name the or. Or the number. Right. That or so is important. How does that? Tr okay. Go ahead. See, yeah, people say the mark of the beast is 666. No, it's the mark or the number or the name. They're three different things. I never noticed that before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so people will be dis... Um, people believe one thing might be deceived easily. They may be deceived easily thinking, well, it's not a 666. This is a, a name of a guy. So that's going to be okay. No. Yeah, tattoos are forbidden, but okay. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 13, because you guys are all thinking the right way. The mere fact that something looks miraculous does not mean that God is giving that to us as direction. We must test the spirits, as the Bible tells us. So back in 13, we'll start at verse 1 and read 1 through 3 again to see why we looked at all those other scriptures. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams... And it gives you a sign or a wonder. And you're right, there's lots of this going on today. And the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. The word serve means to be obedient to them, to do what they tell us to do. So if they tell us to disobey God as happened in 1 Kings 13, that's the same as telling us, let us go after other gods. Because what does it tell us in Romans chapter 6, verse 16? Let's go look. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants, one who obeys another, to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So close your eyes and think back to the Garden of Eden. God said, thou shalt not eat from the tree 
The serpent said, you shall eat from the tree. And who did they listen to? They listened to the serpent, not to God. That makes them the servants of the serpent, not of God. And all of mankind fell. Okay, back to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, will you be disobedient or obedient? Obedient, prove it. Give me a scripture. John 14, 15. If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. What is the love of God? That we keep his commandments. So he wants to know, will you follow me or will you be led away to obey another? And right, right here in the section you're in, it says, do not add to nor take away. Right, that's why we look back at the last verse, verse 32 of the chapter before. Do not add to it. Do not take away from what God commands. That really means don't embellish it too. We've got... Don't embellish it. We've got people preaching today that will take something from God, but then by the time they start transferring it to use for themselves, you know, for instance, I need a new jet plane. Uh, they change the meaning of it entirely, don't they? They embellish it, so they're adding to it. Yeah. And, and therefore the meaning is, not only are you supposed to give your 10%, you're supposed to give way above it so God will bless you by giving that to me, so I can buy an airplane, then that commandment will apply to you. But if you don't do that, that commandment really is not for you. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of adding to and taking away today. Right. An example of that, that very same thing, I won't name the preacher, but it hasn't been too long ago. He said, not everyone who's saved gets to go in the rapture. Only those who give at least 10% of their gross income to my ministry, only they can go in the rapture. To which I said, I'm not standing near you on Judgment Day. <laughs> but and, and along, along with what? Uh, I'm Bob. Yeah, thank you, Bob. I'm Bill. Uh, along with what Bob was saying, like, when you embellish something and you add to it, you're also taking away the truth out of it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. yeah. So, I mean, right. it goes the same way. Yeah. If you add to the commandments of God, then you're doing what you think is right, not what God said. Right. If you take away from what God commanded, then you're doing what you want to do. But does God give us the answer of how to pass the test? He says in verses 1 to 3, it's a test. How do we pass? That's in verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. So whenever you're tested this way, the response is what Messiah said in Matthew 4.4. 4, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he's telling Satan, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to my father. That's what I'm going to do. So what happened in the 4th century? 
God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Pope said, no, 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 don't do that. Do Sunday instead to show that you obey me rather than God. God said, observe the Passover. In the fourth century, the Pope said, no, 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 don't do the Passover. Do Easter to show that you're obeying me. God said, don't eat unclean foods. In the fourth century, the Pope said, no, 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 you've got to eat pig. You've got to eat pig to show that you're a Christian. Not a Jew, not a God follower. Yeah. If people had listened to Deuteronomy 13, they would have said, oh, no, no, no. We follow the Lord. We do not follow contrary commandments given by a man. How many churches want you to, uh, want you to speak the Apostles' Creed? Well, yeah. You know, to, to show that you're affirm your affirmation of the, the holy catholic church yeah which and they said oh this is not roman catholicism this is the universal yeah. church which yeah. is the same thing all right <laughs> yep so let's get back to deuteronomy 13 verse 5 but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be what put to death because here's the reason it's a death sentence because he has spoken in order, that is, this is his motivation, to turn you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you. What does the word entice mean? To tempt you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. God says, if you don't put that prophet to death, Look at how many people he might lead to the lake of fire. How many people he might turn away from the true and living God. Yes, ma'am? So why wasn't that false prophet in verse 13 uh, dealt with accordingly? Because they were in the northern kingdom and they didn't care? Because they're in the northern kingdom and they weren't following anything God said to do anyway, right? Yes, sir. Yep. Matter of fact, most of the time, the ones they put to death were the true prophets, not the false prophets. Yeah. And then I, I probably should skip this note, but I won't. <laughs> For the Hebrew students in here, one of the verbs in verse 5 is a hofal verb. And they are so very rare that I just want you to know that if you want to see a hofal verb, there's one in verse 5. And that's a passive tense verb from a tense that is so rarely used. But ignoring that, let's get on. No. No, because most of you couldn't care less what a whole fall verb is. But those of you who do care right now punching in their computers, I can see it. I'm going to go find it. Okay. Um, it's you, Matt, you'll find. Okay. But... When it says in verse 5, to entice you from the way, what does he mean by the way? Yeshua was the way. Yeshua is the way. But the term the way goes all the way back. Let's start in Exodus chapter 14. The way means the way God commanded us to live. The path he commanded us to walk. 
is the word used there halakha actually the Jewish word, Hebrew word? I said the word way. Is it um, halakha? It comes from. It's hot derek. Hot derek is the way. Oh. Hal halakha comes from the word halak, which is to walk. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So you see the word walk, it's a form of the same thing. Halakha is the noun, to walk is the verb. The way Biblical Hebrew works is all the nouns derive from the verbs. So if you've got the verb shamar, which means he guarded, the word shomer, guardian, you see has the same consonants. They derive from the same word. Okay. Exodus 14.22. I just know if I start delving into the roots of Biblical Hebrew, eyes will glaze over. <laughs> Exodus 14.22 So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on the left. I wanted to come here specifically for you to picture this in your mind. The words used describe the waters on the right hand and the left are like jello. They have gelled. So Israel is walking through on a straight and narrow path that takes them from the danger of the Egyptian army to freedom on the other shore. What would happen if they would get off the path and choose to go left or right? They'd be in jello. They would drown, right? They would drown. So you follow the path that God has set out for you and it leads to life. You divert from the path to the left or to the right and it leads to death. That's what Romans chapter 6 verse 16 was trying to get at. God told us the path to life. And he says in Deuteronomy 30, I've said before you today, life and death, choose life. But you get to choose. Let's go to Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 5 recites the Ten Commandments. Of course, remember, in Hebrew, it's not the Ten Commandments. They're called the Ten Words. What did Messiah say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yep. Deuteronomy 5.32, though. Therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand, or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days, the land which you shall possess. So in the Red Sea, God gives a picture of what he's commanding us here and what he's telling us is that if you follow the path that God sets out, it leads to life. If you divert to the left or right, then it leads off to death. Go to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. We'll read verses 19 and 20. So we don't start in the middle of a sentence. And it shall be with him, that is, the king writes his own copy of the Torah scroll. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, 
And be careful to observe all the words of this law, the Torah, and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. When I was growing up in church, I was taught that the scribes and Pharisees kept the commandments of God down to the smallest detail and that the Lord despised them for it. So that teaches us that we're not to keep God's commandments because he doesn't like it. But did the scribes and Pharisees follow God's commandments? They followed men's commandment, not God's. What scripture do you have to back that up? Okay, let's go to Mark 7. You could also go to Matthew 15. Let's go to Mark 7, since that one was suggested. That's what he railed against them for. We're for keeping their man-made commandments and not God's commandments. They turned from the right to the left. They didn't stay on the path. Mark 7 is not about eating pigs. If you've been told that, just wipe that from your mind. It's about a ceremonial hand washing called netilat yadayim, which is a special way to wash your hands with a two-handled cup that was commanded not by God, but by the Pharisees. So we'll start in verse 1 so you can see that. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Is that the Torah, the commandments of God? No, that's the man-made rules. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other things which they've received and hold, etc., Verse 5, then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? In other words, why don't they follow our commandments instead of God's? He answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. So while I grew up being told they kept the very minutia of God's commandments, Messiah says they set aside God's commandments and substituted their own. They turned off the way to the right or to the left. Let's go back to Joshua chapter 1. Moses did not let was not allowed to let the children of Israel cross over the river. He died before they crossed over the Jordan River. Joshua had to lead them. In Joshua 1.7, before he leads the people in, he gives them this instruction. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. 
Now think back to Matthew 4, 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the lips of God. And then what we read in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is breathed out of the mouth of God and is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Where does it change in the Bible? It doesn't. But people misunderstand sometimes. Have you been taught that our faith makes the law empty, void? Let's look at Romans 3.31. Romans 3.31. Do we then make void the law through faith? Answer? No. Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. This is the Apostle Paul. In chapter 4, verse 15. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Meaning if there is no law anymore, there's no sin. What do you know? We've never sinned. We don't need a savior. Is that what the scripture says? No, it is not. Romans chapter 5, verse 13. Sin is not imputed when there is no law. What is he trying to tell them? That the law has been abolished or that it has not? <coughs> mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, 20. Verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. That. Yep. If the scripture, Paul tells us that if God didn't tell us not to do something, then our sinful nature wouldn't make us want to do it. If God had never said, you can't eat from that tree, would they even have wanted to eat from the tree? Okay, I understand that. That's what he's trying to get at here. Okay. Yeah. But, but there, you know, there are people, this is weird, that they say, okay, I can smoke marijuana because there's no commandment against smoking marijuana in the scripture. But the scripture says to be sober, to be vigilant. Yeah. To be sober, to be vigilant. And when it uses the word sorcery, the Greek word is pharmakia, which means drug abuse. But he doesn't mean don't take aspirin. He means right. don't take cocaine or, he, or don't yeah. take a bottle of aspirin. Yeah, hallucinogenic type drugs are designed to open up the mind to the spirit world. And unfortunately, it's it not does. the good spirits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I cannot tell you that from personal experience. Okay. I, I, I agree with you on that. Okay. Let's look at Romans 6, 16 and read on past 16. We looked at 16, but we stopped there. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves or servants to obey, you are that one's servants whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. 
I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Okay, I don't want to belabor the point. I have a question. So let's answer your question. Let's go back to what my brother was talking about, about marijuana. I know people who use marijuana for cancer treatment. Pain, instead of being on the narcotics and things like that. So when they come to me and ask me what my thought or opinion is, I tell them it's God-given, and if you're using it for a natural purpose, other than you know, you know, things to to do mind things, that it's clean. But what I'm listening to you say, it's not clean. Well, only God can judge at the end, but I would not be encouraging people to use those kind of drugs. I know, I know from my personal yeah. experience, with so, let's cover up pain, <laughs> emotional pain, that it gets me worse, got me worse and worse and worse and worse away from recovery. Yeah. So let's go back to Joshua, but to chapter 23. Joshua chapter 23, verse 6. Still looking at the way and not going to the right hand or to the left. In Joshua 23 verse 6 it says, Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do. Wait a minute. Is that repetitive? To keep and to do? No, to keep means to guard. To be careful. And to do means actually do what was commanded. <laughs> All that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Hmm. Why the emphasis on the word all? Is it okay to pick and choose? No. How about if we change a commandment, but we keep the same number? Like, I'm going to do away with thou shalt not steal and replace it with thou shalt not eat broccoli. We got the same number. Can I do that? Answer, of course, is no. I'm being silly. 2 Corinthians chapter 34. Now let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 34. The Baptist church I attended many years ago in Prattville, Alabama, had a big copy of the Ten Commandments on the wall. It must have been 20 feet high. And the Fourth Commandment read, read, Thou shalt go to church on Sunday. So they literally took out, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and replaced it with Thou shalt go to church on Sunday, and put it up there for everybody to read as if that is what God has said. Is that replacing a commandment with another? Yes, it is. Second Chronicles 34, verse 2. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. This is who? Josiah. Josiah. This is the one that was prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 1 Kings chapter 13 together. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. 
How would you like that to be the way God summarizes your life when you come to Judgment Day? He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. That's high praise. And then Isaiah chapter 30. He was a man like David after God's own heart, right? Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 through 22. The key verse is 21. I want to read 18 to 22. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. Therefore he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion or Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. So this is talking about the millennial kingdom when Messiah rules and reigns on earth. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. You will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. You'll throw them away as an unclean thing. You'll say to them, get away. So in verse 21, you'll hear a word behind you spoken in your ear that you've turned aside to the right hand or to the left. Who is teaching in the millennial kingdom? Messiah is teaching. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 2 and see what he's teaching. Isaiah 2 is about the millennial kingdom with Messiah on the throne. The key verse is 3, but we'll read 2 to 4 to make sure we cover the topic. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, it's not latter days, it's the end of days, the Akhrit Hayamim. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. That's to the temple where Messiah rules and reigns. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we'll walk in his paths. And he's going to teach us the Torah. So if we try and go to the left or to the right. We're going to hear Messiah's words saying no, no, no. Get back on the path. When I say we I mean the human beings that are left alive on earth in their physical mortal bodies. Because hopefully by that point we will have been raptured or resurrected into our immortal bodies. Okay, enough of that. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 13. We're up to verse 6. 
And we're going to read 6 to 9. And then we'll talk about it. In verse 5, God said that prophet or dreamer of dreams must be put to death because otherwise he's going to lead people away from God into perdition. Verses 6 to 9 says, If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is as your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers. Of the gods of the people who are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. To put Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward, the hand of all the people. So the point of verses 6 to 9 is it doesn't matter who the false teacher is, the false prophet. Even if it's somebody that's so very close to you, do not listen to them. And we're going to talk about this a little more, but I see I've read 12 circles out here. Let's see. I thought I was watching the computer, but apparently not. <laughs> The first question is, how do we reconcile the observation of Hanukkah as an addition in worship? It's not an addition. It's prophesied in, Deuteron or in Daniel chapters 8 and 11 and was observed by Messiah in John chapter 10. So it's not an addition. And then it says, I know our salvation was on the porch during these days. Okay, that's John chapter 10. And didn't speak against the observation. Yeah. But do you ever find Messiah in Jerusalem except at the festival times? No. The answer is no. He only goes up for the festivals. Okay, Julie Page responds. They respond. They resp I think they're just arguing back and forth now. Okay. <laughs> Never mind that. Back to Deuteronomy. Verse 9. So this means if I'm walking down the street... And I hear somebody say something that would lead me away from God. I should pick up a rock and hit him, right? No. No. You had to take the person to court. You had to present evidence. There had to be at least two witnesses to testify to the offense. The court had to find them guilty. And the court had to sentence them to death. You don't go around with stones deciding who you should hit in the head. But, but, Wayne. but Wayne, go ahead. In John 10, when Jesus declared himself to be God at the dedication of the temple, yeah. there, the people picked up stones to stone him. Yes, and they were wrong. Were they following God? Mm -hmm. They were not. In John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. They're picking up stones. They're ready to stone her. Are they following God's commandments? No, they're not. So the fact that they're acting in disobedience to God does not mean we should follow their example. Any of you who've been to Israel know why stoning was so popular, right? Lots of stones. Lots of stones. Yes? Good and loud. Your eyes shall not 
you shall not, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. Right. You know, like it would be easy to say, oh, that's my brother or my sister or my wife and say, and just ignore it. Right. But God said you can't ignore it. And that, that goes along with Romans 1 where it says if you stand by and, con- and just let it happen, it's like you're consenting with it. Right. Instead of I'm standing up for God, I'm trying to defend this person who is an affront to God. Right. And what should we do? We should stand up for God. And you know, something else. Back earlier when we were talking about the prophet from Judah. Right. You know, it says to put the false prophet to death here in verse 5. But who else died? It was the one who followed the false prophet. The one who followed the false prophet, too, was led to his death. You're right. So, you know, what does that tell you about listening to these false prophets? They, they're, they're commanded to die, but also what happens to you? Does that remind you of Matthew chapter? Uh, chapter 7. How about 23? We'll go back to chapter 7 in a minute. But you're right. Because that's where Messiah talks specifically about false teachers and their fruit. And then what happens on judgment day. You're absolutely correct. So first, Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Because I do hear a lot of people say, well, okay, the false teachers, God's going to judge them one day, but... The people that listen to him, he'll give them a pass because they were led astray, right? No. Just like God gave Adam and Eve a pass, right? Because they were led astray. No. Okay. Matthew twenty-three fifteen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why does he call them hypocrites? Because they pretend to be righteous and they're not. If you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, that is to convert one Gentile to Judaism, and when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So does the Lord say the proselyte's okay because he was taught wrong? He's just as bad as you are. Just as bad as you are. And then in Matthew 7, Messiah talks specifically about a broad road and a narrow road. So let's go look at that discussion. Because everybody on both roads think they're on the road to heaven. Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. They think they're on the road to heaven, but where are they on the road to? Destruction, Destruction, perdition, the lake of fire. Verse 14, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Keep a finger here. There are few who find it. Go to Luke chapter 13. Keep a finger in Matthew because we're coming back. Luke chapter 13, verse 23. Yeah, a lot of 13s today. Luke 13, 23. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? It's actually who are being saved. Notice they're finally understanding from the parables, Lord, 
Are there few who are being saved? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. Yes, the Lord says, and there are few who find it. And the reason is given in the next verse, verse 15. Why are so many people think they're on the road to heaven, but they're not? It says, beware of false prophets, false teachers, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Well, how can we know whether a teacher is a true teacher or false? That's the Deuteronomy 13 test. And the answer is right here in verse 16. You'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their actions. Do they lead you to God or do they lead you away from God? So starting in verse 21 to get to the bottom line of it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. They call Messiah Lord. And yet they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It says, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's not clear enough. That's not enough guidance. So let's keep reading. Many will say to me in that day. What day? Day of the Lord. Judgment day. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? They're saying, we did know you. We did believe in you. We did put our faith in you. And this proves it. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, anomia, you who live a lifestyle of breaking God's commandments. They may have called him Lord. They may have done miraculous things. But if they were not obedient to him, what does the scripture say? It says, I never knew you. But this is only one. You never noticed this before. Good and loud. In verse 22, the, the people that are defending themselves never say, Lord, I kept your commandments. They never do, because they did what they thought they should do instead. They never said, Lord, I kept your commandments the best that I could. I kept your Torah. They, they, they're saying, look at all these external things that you should like anyway. Right. I thought I should do these things that you'd like them better. So they've diverted to the right hand or to the left and thought the Lord would be pleased with it. And what do they learn? Yeah. And then we have the book of John. It's regular old John 14. We talked about that a few minutes ago. Where he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But he says more than that. So that's John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. But he does more than that. And look at verses 23 and 24. Yeshua answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So he says, The way I know whether you love me or not is what? whether you kept the commandments or whether you didn't. And then, of course, in 1 John, John writes 30 years after the other apostles are dead and gone, and the church is beginning to follow a doctrine called antinomianism taught by the Nicolaitans. And in 1 John chapter 2, John presents this to the church. 
He gives us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, a test of how we can know. How we can know whether we know him or whether we don't. Because John 17, 3 says to know him is to have eternal life. And 1 John 2, 3 says, now by this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word. Truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him. Ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Acts 4, 19 and 20. Brother, let's go. Acts 4, 19 and 20. Just a minute. Acts 4, 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered and said to him, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Yes, Rachel. Yes, sir. Um, in 1 John 2, 3 through 6, also... You don't have to turn back there. And then also 1 Corinthians 13, 1, uh, 11, 1. We know that we're supposed to imitate Messiah. Right, imitate so Messiah. By, so by those two scriptures, that tells us if Yeshua was in, in Jerusalem celebrating Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication, we should too. Because yep. we're supposed to follow him and follow what he does. Yep. Fair enough. So... What breaks my heart, and the reason that I talk so much on this topic, is close your eyes for a moment. Picture it's Judgment Day. You're standing before Messiah, being judged. And he says, how do I know that you love me? And you say, I went to church every Sunday morning. God commanded us to observe Shabbat. It was the Pope who commanded Sunday. I put up the biggest Christmas trees. God said, don't do that. I colored the most beautiful Easter eggs. God said, don't do that. How's it going to go? So let's go back to Deuteronomy. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. Okay, go ahead. Yes, ma'am. Chapter 13. Chapter 13. And the whole idea of, another, you know, I'm just going to say friends or family. Whole idea of friends or family. There comes a point in time, and I don't really know what my question is per se, but a person can minister to them, can, can, can declare the word of the Lord, can share with them, pray with them, talk with them, and at some point in time, isn't the Lord saying, this is my battle, I know their heart, and you need to move on away from even friends and family because we have to follow what God has told us. Yes, that is entirely and possible. let all of that rest. Yeah, Messiah said he came not to bring peace within families, to, to bring more within families for those who choose not to believe. Should those who believe say, well, I'll walk in sin with you because I love you more than God? We should not do that. Well, remember what Messiah 
his disciples, he said, that they won't receive your word, dust your feet off and go on. Yeah. He said, don't cast your pearls before swine. There comes a point where maybe we've said all we can say. And I'm just stubborn and refuse to give in. I will continue to teach until God says no more. But was no one who opened my eyes to the truth but Yeshua. Right. Through the Matthew. Okay. Yep. And the preacher was preaching something totally different but that's not what the Holy Spirit spoke to me. Okay. And I sometimes would like to help others find their way so I find that by me living my life out loud mm-hmm. and then see where I'm at versus where you're at than judge. Mm-hmm. But I can't say no one person ever told me the truth until I found Yeshua ministering okay. and directing me. So if he did that for me, he'll do it for anyone else. Sure. If you're listening for him, he will speak. That's the key, if you're listening. Mm-hmm. If you're listening. I found there's a big difference between those who want to know what the Bible says and those who don't care what the Bible says. But let's go back to Deuteronomy because we care what the Bible says. Deuteronomy chapter 13, we're up to verse 10. Verse 10. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies. Because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. This, I hate talking about stuff like this, but we may as well. The way stoning was done is not the way people oftentimes think it is. You just chase somebody down the street with the stones. After the court gives a judgment of death by stoning, then the witnesses who testified against the person have to be the first to throw the first stones. But the way it's done is you went up to a cliff the person who's been condemned gets pushed off the cliff and a boulder gets rolled off on them. It's only if they survive that then the people throw the smaller stones until the person is dead. That's why it says in verse 10, you shall stone him with stones until he dies. Usually that boulder is, the, is enough. So if there's only one witness to the offense... Nope, they go free. There has to be two or more witnesses before a death sentence can be given. And, then, and, then those and two they witnesses. are the ones that have to push the big stone because if they're lying, now God's going to hold them accountable right. for murder. But then they have to take him before the council or whatever yeah. and, 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 and accuse him and then witness that this was a correct accusation. Right, and there have to be two or more to testify to the exact same thing. Why, when they tried Messiah, did they bring in false witness after false witness and couldn't prove anything because nobody was willing to tell the second lie? Because it had developed in Judaism the idea that God would only hold the second liar responsible. So everybody was willing to tell the first lie, but nobody was willing to be the second person to confirm it. I don't know that God looks at things that way. But Isn't it true also, though, that if, if we're... I've gone to court before the Sanhedrin and I accuse you of something and then you are proven guilty. Don't I receive the punishment that you would have gotten had you been guilty? 
I believe that was a Judaic custom. You said, I was found guilty, but I think you meant I was found not guilty. Right, if you were found innocent, then automatically I was guilty of whatever I'd accused you of, and they would give me that penalty. It is entirely possible. I can't say for sure, but I've heard that. I think tradition, I think in that, in that era, you know, coming from Moses, it, that, that wasn't what Moses said, but coming on from Moses, I believe that... People, that became the custom. I think people said... If you're lying about an innocent person, then you deserve the penalty that he would have gotten. Otherwise, you could just, oh, today I'll accuse you, well, tomorrow I'll accuse him, and I'll just keep on doing that. And we have lawyers that do that for a living. Let's go on to Deuteronomy 13 and not pick on lawyers. Shakespeare did enough of that. Okay. Verse 11 says, So all Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as this among you. So the reason they're put to death is so that the rest of the people in, in the nation will not repeat this offense. If you ever see somebody stoned, you're never going to want that to happen to you. So it's a good deterrent for crime, they say. So it's a warning for all Israel. You just give them life in prison and... Even yeah. Verse 12. If you hear someone in one of your cities which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in saying. What's that word saying? Quote. Corrupt men. It's not corrupt men. The Hebrew is men, sons of Belial. Belial is the devil. So men who are followers of the devil, as Messiah described the scribes and the Pharisees, which they didn't like it a bit. So men, sons of Belial, have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of your city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. So if there's an allegation. Then you shall inquire. What's it mean to inquire? Ask questions. This is the trial. Search out. Ask diligently. Try and find all the witnesses you can. Did this happen or not? Because you never want to convict a guilty. You never want to convict an innocent person. Well, we'll let it go with that. Yeah. And if it is indeed true and certain, meaning it has been proven to God's satisfaction, that such an abomination has, was committed amongst you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it and its livestock with the edge of the sword. Now this is serious. Verses 12 to 14 and 15 are about a city where the idea of turning from God to idolatry has spread. The people have not gone forth and made accusations. They've covered it up. They've adopted it. They've adopted it. The city is going contrary to God and going into idolatry. What will happen if it continues to spread? Will it spread beyond the city? It'll spread beyond the city. So God says, destroy the entire city. Because everyone in it had the responsibility, according to Deuteronomy 13, to report that this was going on 
and they chose not to. What did Daniel say about Romans chapter 1? You sit back and you tolerate it. God considers you're a part of it. So this motivates the entire nation to say, if you hear this is going on, report it. Say something so we can stop it. Did Israel do that? Or did idolatry permeate throughout the land? It permeated throughout the land and Israel went out into captivity. They could have put a stop to it. But they chose not to. Because what comes with pagan idolatry? Sexual immorality. Verse 16, you shall gather all its plunder into the middle of the street and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder. I mean, you don't get to keep the silver and the gold or anything. For the Lord your God, it shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. Meaning that city is to be wiped off the map entirely, never again to be inhabited. Why? Verse 17 explains why. It sounds harsh, but this is why. It says, so none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy, have compassion on you, and multiply you just as he swore to your fathers, because you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God. To keep all his commandments, I command you today to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. So when we don't stand up in public outcry against the wickedness and unrighteousness that we see going on in our country today, not only in Washington or Atlanta, but right here around us, then we're if we don't stand in public outcry against it in any situation, whether we're sitting at a house watching a movie that's not got totally clean stuff in it, and say, I don't want this in my house, you know, as simple as that in private to out here in public, you know, at the gas station or at Walmart or a grocery store or wherever we happen to be, then we're being complacent and silently agreeing with what's whatever that and we need not to do that how many churches do you see on tv going around blessing planned parenthood for their abortions that go and do blessings over the gay pride parades is that standing against the sin or is that being complacent yeah let's not do that so let's get on to chapter 14 Oops, I got a red number one out there. Let me see. In case it's... Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 14. Starting in verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. Cutting yourselves and shaving the front of your head for the dead literally means shaving between the eyes was a pagan custom. You remember in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah had the contest with the prophets of Baal, how they were cutting themselves and letting the blood drain. 
that's the kind of thing that Lord is speaking about here. I told you, I think last week or the week before, I recently went to a restaurant and the lady at the register had just razor cuts all down her arm. It's getting to be a very popular thing amongst high school girls in particular for some reason. God said don't do it. Go back to 1 Kings 18. I mentioned it. Let's go look at it. This is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings chapter 18. Verse 28. Elijah is having the time of his life with these prophets. The English doesn't convey everything that he's saying to them. I mean, he's telling them, cry out louder, perhaps your God has taken a nap. Or maybe he's on a vacation, or maybe he's in the bathroom relieving himself. Verse 28 says, So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. It was a pagan practice. They thought that if we shed our own blood, then that's going to cause Baal to have, take notice of us and respond to us. And what did Baal do? No. Not a thing, because he isn't real. So they just had sore arms. They just had sore arms. Oh, but more than that, oh, I just love it. If you've ever been on the Mukraka where this happens, if you look way off in the distance, you can see the creek that Elijah sent him down, all the way down the mountain and across the valley to the creek to fill up big barrels of water and haul them back up the mountain. And then send them back down for more and more. He was just having fun with them. And they poured all that water on the altar that Elijah had set up. And Elijah says, Lord! And fire comes down from heaven and consumes it all. To try and prove to the people that the Lord is God and there is no other. So cutting yourself was a pagan practice. Leviticus 21.5. Leviticus 21.5. Leviticus 21.5 is on the same topic as Deuteronomy 14.1. It says, they shall not make any bald place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edges of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. How many of you have seen the movie Robin Hood with Errol Flynn? Yes, a long time ago. Long time ago. When they were clean movies. Yeah, back when they were clean movies. And remember, they had a... Um, a friar with them. Yeah, yeah. And you remember the friar, yeah, how yeah. he had shaved the top of his head? Yeah. God says, don't do that. He's not talking about shaving off your hair because, well, it's all falling out anyway. And it looks better to just shave it. No, this was a practice that was pagan in origin, something they did to their gods. And he said, don't do that to me. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. Yes, Rachel? What about the beard? 
Do you remember how Pharaoh and the Egyptians squared off their beard in a special way? Don't do that. First John chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. In Deuteronomy 14, it says, You are the children of the Lord your God. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Have you thought about that? What an honor it is, really. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That's what sin is, is breaking God's commandments. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he's been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. What 1 John chapter 3 is telling us is that we can't continue walking in a lifestyle of sin. If you can do that and your conscience does not just convict the snot out of you, you got to wonder whether you're truly saved or not. That's what John's trying to tell us. Is that if you've been saved by faith, washed clean in the shed blood of Messiah, knowing that your sin caused Messiah to suffer and die like that, why would you want to walk in sin after that? That's what Paul says in Romans 6, 1, when he says, What then shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Let's go to John chapter 1, verse 12. Let me check the time. Oh, got lots of time yet. Minutes and minutes. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, who's the him? Our Messiah Yeshua. To them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. Who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So salvation by faith is what gives us the power, the right, the authority to become children of the true and living God. John chapter 11, verse 52. 
John chapter 11, verse 52. Yes. Yep, if you're in Acts chapter John, you're in the wrong place. John chapter 11, verse 52. We'll start in 51 to make sure I read the whole sentence. Now this he did not say in his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Yeshua would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad, meaning the Gentiles. The Gentiles who become children of God will get brought back into the kingdom like wild olive trees being grafted into the cultivated tree. Romans 8. Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba doesn't mean Father. Abba means Daddy. It's a more personal term. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Romans 9, 8. Romans 9, 8. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. That is, it's not the physical descendants of Abraham. It's those who have the faith of Abraham. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If we are children of God, what does Ephesians 5 1 tell us? It says, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. So if we are children of God, we will be imitators of God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, where Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Messiah. And as 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 tells us that we will walk as Messiah walked. And verse 2 of Ephesians 5 tells us how that is. And walk in love. As Messiah also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma, but, in other words, here are characteristics that do not describe children of God. It 
Sam, send me an email. I'll send you all the material you want. Verse 3, but fornication. What's fornication? Sex outside of marriage. And all uncleanness. How much uncleanness? All uncleanness. So we can't eat piggies, shrimps, and lobsters? No. Or covetousness. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians comes right after Ephesians. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. It says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Messiah, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. One more verse, then we'll stop for the day because we're running out of time. And that is... That's a good question. What is that? Second Corinthians. Chapter 6. Of course it is. Second Corinthians chapter six, we find a whole list of polar opposites. You can be one or the other, but not both. Second Corinthians chapter six. Starting in verse fourteen through chapter seven, verse one. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Righteousness and lawlessness are opposites. Sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Messiah with Belial? Belial's the devil. Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them. And walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises that we can become the children of God, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And with that, we need to bring the Bible study to close for today. So let's close in prayer.